From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Defense Information Systems Agency and National Security Agency will lead a zero-trust effort for the Defense Department. DISA Director Vice Admiral Nancy Norton says the zero-trust reference architecture will be out by the end of this year. Breaking defense reports, it'll show organizations how to upgrade what they have without buying new technology to execute a zero-trust strategy. The General Services Administration will replace the Alliant 2 small business contract it canceled at the beginning of July. GSA's Keith Nakasone says agencies should, and companies should, quote, stay tuned for more details about the replacement. FCW reports Nakasone says GSA continues work on other contract vehicles, too. The Air Force's new Information Warfare Command's at full operational capability less than a year after it stood up. The 16th Air Force's commander, Lieutenant General Timothy Haw, says convergence of some stovepiped elements was one difficulty in getting the command operational capability. C4ISRNet reports Haw says the command hit all of its operational requirements on Monday. Agencies have until the middle of September to create a transition plan for politically appointed senior leaders. Both parties are preparing for the next administration, even during the coronavirus. Robert Shea's principal at Grant Thornton Public Sector, former associate director at the Office of Management and Budget. Robert, thanks for coming on the program. I think a lot of people understand that when it's obvious, as it was the case for you in 2008, President Bush would not be reelected, term limited, that a transition will happen. I think a lot of people, don't, even in government, don't think about what happens transition-wise at the end of the first term of any uh, president's administration. What's going on right now, or what should start to happen soon about a potential transition, whether President Trump's reelected or Vice President Biden becomes president? So thanks, Francis. Uh, several reform laws over the last several decades have been drafted to ensure that we're prepared for a transition, whether it's the re-election of an existing president or the election of a new president. Um, it's important to note that when a, uh, whether or not a president is reelected, um, a, a, a president that's reelected generally is going to replace a wide swath of the employees they have in place. So uh, it, it just it's important that we prepare for a transition in any case. What are the important factors that people should be thinking about in the agencies, the career people who are going to be there regardless of what happens in November and who comes in next January? What are, what's the best track for those people to be on right now? It is a little tricky in the case of a re-election. Um, you, you've got to be sensitive to those who are on the ground, those who are in political appointments, and you've got to be attentive to those who may be preparing to take over because all of this preparation is designed to ease the transition uh, from one president to the, ne to the next in our elected democracy. Um, so they should be paying attention to um, what policies they need to have in place should a transition take place, uh, what initiatives are ongoing that they need to make sure uh, continue uh, should there be a transition, and they should be looking at succession. What positions need career leadership to step in in the absence of a political position, because as you know, uh, they won't be able to fill all these politically appointed positions overnight. 
Well, and the challenge this administration's up against is that it already has a whole lot of those people uh, working in acting roles. There are some career folks doing those jobs. There are some political appointees that are doing those jobs on an acting or performing the duties of basis. Does that complicate this process at all, or does it actually make it easier because there are, are fewer jobs to fill? I don't think it makes a difference uh, uh, in the case of a transition. Um, those, uh, you know, if a new president is elected, those pres those positions will be vacant in any case. Um, if their president is reelected, um, I do hope that there'll be a renewed interest in filling those vacancies. Because as you and I have discussed, having full-time appointed people in those positions make them far more effective than if there's an acting in those spots. So to that point, one of the wrinkles in this transition is that something, uh, sources have told me at least, that something that traditionally happens at, uh, at, be, at well beyond this or before this point in an administration finishing a term, whether it's a first or a second term, hasn't happened in this, in this administration. And that is January, February, maybe March of the year of the election. The Office of Presidential Personnel usually sends out uh, an email, letter, memo, whatever, saying, if you're planning on leaving, please leave now, or we will take it to mean that you're planning on staying through January 20th. That didn't happen from uh, what my sources tell me in this administration. Is that potentially a complication, Robert, as uh, people don't feel compelled or don't feel obligated to stay all the way through January 20th? Yeah, I hope that's not the only wrinkle you can think of during this presidential transition. Well, we are. It, it, there's a, a storm of crises, the likes of which our nation's never seen. But um, uh, it, it, it is the, something that these reforms have thought of. Every agency is obligated, as you mentioned at the top of the story, to come up with a succession plan, how they are going to fill the positions that are currently filled acting or, or, or permanent political positions. How are they going to make sure those responsibilities are fulfilled during and throughout the transition? All right. What do you watch as this all unfolds? Is there something maybe at GSA, which is the home of the uh, transition offices and the transition effort? Is there something in the individual agencies? Are you looking for something out of OMB or OPP? Or what? where are you watching? Where? What are you paying attention to? Yeah. So the first trigger is the nominating conventions, will, which will take place here in a couple of weeks. That's the point at which GSA can reach out to the transition teams, tell them that they've got space at the Hoover building, the Department of Commerce headquarters, um, that they can occupy to prepare for the transition. And then, you know, every good government group in town and some new ones are scrambling to uh, provide advice to the new administration. So who's staffing the transition team, what advice they're getting, are good bellwethers about the people and policies that will be in place that will drive this town, at least from a management improvement perspective, over the next several years. Robert Shea, thanks as always. Great to have you on the program. Good to be with you, Francis. Coming next, riding the thrift savings plan roller coaster through the pandemic. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what's coming next to keep your retirement savings safe? You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
69% of federal employees say the thrift savings plan attracted them to a job to take a job in the government. And the new federal benefits survey shows even more feds keep their jobs because of the TSP. Greg Klingler is director at Giba Wealth Management. Greg, it's good to see you again. What's your takeaway from the federal benefits survey? Anything here that jumped out at you? Well, you know, as a financial planner, um, the, the three things that we consider to be the kind of most important from a financial planning standpoint for workers and for retirees, the TSP, the pension, um, the FEHB, the health care program, um, it's nice to see that uh, federal employees also value those things on a great deal. Now, that isn't very much different than the last survey, but it just kind of reinforces you the reason why federal employees become federal employees and stay federal employees is because of these very powerful um, benefits, and they are correct about it. So it's good to hear. The, the thing about the thrift savings plan that I always ask is, other than actually becoming a federal employee, is there some way I can get into it because it's such a great deal? Um, what are your clients coming to you and asking you about now, in particular about the TSP, with all the turmoil in the marketplace driven by coronavirus and uncertainty about where they're working from and all those kinds of things. Are the questions changing over the last several months vis-a-vis um, -vis what people were talking about prior to the virus starting? Well, I think you keyed on the, the, the key term is the turmoil that happened in the market. Um, you know, we saw the market on February 18th with, with most indexes hit its all-time highs. And then within about a month on March 23rd, we saw most indexes down 30 or even sometimes 40%. And then, then we had quarter two. Quarter two, if you look at the commonly quoted indexes, you have um, the NASDAQ composite, you have the S&P 500, you have the Dow Jones Industrial. Each one of those had record gains. No time in the last 100 years have we had a better quarter than Q2 2020. So it's been a very large bounce, and people want to talk about that. What's next? In 2001, there was a secondary decline. In 2008, there was a secondary decline. But this pandemic, it hasn't been seen before. Well, 1918 was the last time people can quote it, and the financial markets did not exist as they do today. So we really don't have a benchmark here on um, you know, what the future is going to hold. I can tell you this is not like your typical financial crisis. Investors with the balance that we saw in Q2, investors have baked in the idea that a vaccine is coming, that um, care is coming. I did not cover the federal space in the 2001 window that you just mentioned. I did in 2008, and I remember, uh, regrettably, the number of people that the housing crisis scared that moved out of the, the CS&I into the G Fund at exactly the wrong time and I wonder if you're seeing people who maybe learned that lesson and hard as it was, emotionally racking as it was, managed to stay the course and enjoyed the rebound in the second quarter that you just talked about, or whether you saw people unfortunately do the same things that people did in 2008, 2009 and missed out on the second quarter. No, I, th I think you make a very good point. In 2007, 2008, we saw people transition to the G Fund and frankly never recover. Mm -hmm. um, I think what we saw with, we have about 2,000 investors here at Giba Wealth Management and the vast majority of people, um, they kind of did the, the, the shelter in place, if you will, um, both physically and in, in regards to their finances. They just sat tight 
and didn't move. So most of them did enjoy the upswing of the market. Um, now we're sitting on a situation where what happens if the vaccine is delayed longer than investors expect, or what happens if treatment is not quite as good as investors expect? We could see a secondary downturn, which is why diversification now is incredibly important. Being a rational investor now is something that every investor, whether they're in the TSP or not, should strive to be. Rational is hard when the market moves the way that it moves. One of the things that people are considering is the options that they have to take money out of their accounts now, either through loans uh, or by just by withdrawals. What kinds of questions, what kind of activity are you seeing in those areas, Greg? Well, a lot of people are talking about that $100,000 that you can take out from your retirement plans. Um, if you're under the age of 59 and a half, the federal government will actually waive the 10% fee. Now, you'll still be on the hook for income taxes, but the 10% penalty is now not an, not an issue anymore. Um, in addition, the CARES Act goes a, a couple steps further, and they say, okay, you can stretch out those tax um, ramifications over three years, not typically one year. And if you have the ability to pay the money back, you can actually avoid taxes altogether, effectively rolling the money back in to a retirement plan. So a lot of people are, are looking at this as a, um, an interest-free loan. And if you do so um, and you're thoughtful in doing so with the idea of paying it back, that could make a lot of sense. But just as a word of caution, withdrawing money from your retirement account can be concerning because you are going to need that money when you do retire. So you're going to want to make sure that you replenish that at, at some point in time. Greg, thanks very much for coming on. It's always great to get your insight. I appreciate it. Up next, telehealth options are important now more than ever. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the team at the VA that's connecting doctors, patients, and technology. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. About 25,000 veterans a day receive health services remotely. That number is up a lot since the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic. More than 9 million veterans can access care through the framework for telehealth at the Department of Veterans Affairs. Dr. Neil Evans is chief officer at the Office of Connected Care at the Department of Veterans Affairs. He's a Service to America Medals finalist in the Management Excellence category, along with his colleagues, Dr. Kathleen, uh, excuse me, Dr. Kevin Galpin and Kathleen Frisbee. Dr. Evans, welcome. Thanks very much for coming on. How did the Department of Veterans Affairs, how did the Connected Care Office handle this explosion in telehealth uh, when coronavirus struck? Sure. Well, um, as you may be aware, the VA has been a leader in innovation and, and in telehealth care delivery for many years now. And so I think part of one of the advantages that we had is we had a really strong foundation um, last year, we delivered more than uh, 2.6 million visits through telehealth. Um, we had more than um, 32,000 providers at more than 1,400 VA facilities caring for their patients through video care and through telehealth. Um, but when the pandemic came, uh, there was an opportunity to really build on that strong foundation we saw an explosion of the utilization of our virtual care capabilities to take care of patients. Um, we were doing around 2,000 video visits per day to the home prior to the pandemic. 
to, to connecting a provider in the VA to the to their patient um, at home. Uh, and now we're we're seeing consistently over 25,000 video visits happening per day. On July 7th, we actually eclipsed 30,000 video visits on that one day alone. It strikes me that you've got two sets of customers to think about. You have the healthcare providers, one set of customers, and of course the veterans who are receiving the care are the others. What are you learning about what both groups of customers like and maybe don't care for as much about delivering care in this way, doctor? Right. Well, so I think I think. Well, let's talk about the veteran first. Um, for the veteran, really, you know, healthcare is about a relationship. It's about a connection uh, between the the, pro, the the patient and the provider who can deliver them the advice or the services that they need. And that and that relationship is at the heart of healthcare. And so, what we are hearing from veterans is that the ability to connect from home conveniently to their provider is something that they really appreciate, whether that be through secure messages. There are more than 11 million secure emails exchanged between patients and their providers um, uh, from January through June of this year, um, whether it be through telephone-based care um, or whether it be by video care. That convenience that allows them to maintain the connection with the provider that they trust for their health care is really, really important. Um, for providers, it's about fitting telehealth care in a meaningful way into the whole set of health care that they deliver. Um, so, you know, for providers, there's a mix of delivering care both in person, but also virtually and fitting that together in a workflow, making sure that that's convenient for them to make the connections to their patients is what we're seeing is really important. Now, you are not just the overseer, the leader of this effort. You continue to provide care uh, yourself this way, what do your patients tell you, even though it's just anecdotal and it's one provider with, with one set of patients, what do they tell you they like about uh, uh, working with you this way? Well, yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, that's a lot of what drives me to do the work that I'm doing is that, uh, I, you know, I've been seeing patients in the VA now for 19 years um, and, and, and love taking care of the, the veterans on my panel. Um, and, and so when I see challenges that they're facing in getting things done, getting connected with me to so that they can get a prescription renewed or refilled. Um, it's exciting for me to be able to then turn and, and help our organization deliver the technologies that make it easier for my, actually my own patients to, to engage with me and transact with the VA. So um, yes, there's my, my patients, you know, really, I would say, enjoy connecting with me by telephone, by video, secure messaging, et cetera. And, and it helps me figure out where we need to make things better as well. So one of the areas you're trying to do that is in connecting veterans who may not be very easy, may not have the resources to connect themselves, uh, accessing telehealth through local area stations, Atlas. Tell me how that will help a vet who maybe doesn't have access to bandwidth, who doesn't have access to whatever other resources he or she needs to be able to connect with you in the first place. Yeah, we want all veterans to be able to benefit from connected care, from telehealth. And we know that not all veterans have access to the to sufficient internet bandwidth at home or even the technology at the home. And so we have a, several initiatives that um, we are pursuing to help reduce what we call the digital divide to make sure that all veterans can, can benefit from from telehealth capabilities. One of those is the Atlas program that we talked about. That's where we're building 
um, locations in communities where patients can go um, in order to have their telehealth visit, where the equipment and the internet connection is available for them. Um, we've also, um, for, for, for patients who don't have internet access at home or the technology and who need to interact frequently with the VA, we have a tablet program where we provide um, data-connected iPads for veterans to be able to connect back with us. And we've also um, pursued strategic partnerships with numerous uh, um, cell providers, um, including uh, T-Mobile, Sprint, which is now part of T-Mobile, um, SafeLink, BiTrackPhone, and Verizon, who um, don't charge data charges to veterans when they connect to us through VA Video Connect to really reduce the barrier for veterans to be able to connect with us. Dr. Evans, congratulations to you and to Dr. Galpin and to Ms. Frisbee on this selection as a finalist for a SAMI. You deserve it, and I appreciate you coming on today. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. If you've missed the show or you're on the go, you can stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Government Matters is available now as an audio podcast. You get it every day on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. Or just ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. I'm back in two minutes. In tonight's event spotlight, the NATSEC 2020 Coronavirus and Beyond Virtual Conference wraps up tomorrow. Day five focuses on the Air Force. You'll learn how COVID-19's impacted the force with Assistant Secretary for Acquisition Technology and Logistics Will Roper, Vice Chief of Staff of the Air Force General Stephen Wilson, and more. It's available tomorrow between 1 and 2 in the afternoon. You can join the webinar free at FedInsider.com or tune in on WJLA 24-7 News. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.